Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, welcome to a special episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. You'll notice we're on video this time, or you have the option to see us there. I'll post that to our Facebook page. So this is a special episode because, as of this recording at least, tomorrow is the release date of Volume 4 of Exploring Mormon Thought. So the fourth book, much anticipated, been in a long gestation period since, well, we'll talk about that and why, but this is, again, Volume 4. And the subtitle is God's Plan to Heal Evil. So on the past in the podcast, we have covered a lot of the topics that were in this book. And I will post links to those so you can go back and listen to the in-depth conversations of kind of some of the formulations of the book and a lot of the in-depth arguments. But for this one, I just wanted to kind of introduce people to what Exploring Mormon Thought is and then the basic overview of this book. So first off, I guess since I'm intending this for people that may not be familiar with you or Exploring Mormon Thought, tell us a very brief introduction of who you are and what is Exploring Mormon Thought. I'm Blake Osler, and uh, I'm a practicing attorney. I do uh, commercial litigation, constitutional litigation, and things like that. I've also taught adjunct uh, philosophy at a number of universities. And Exploring Mormon Thought is an exploration of various topics that are inherent in Mormon thought. So there are now four volumes. The first volume deals with the attributes of God. An attribute is simply something that God must be in order to be God. It's a property that's essential to, to be considered a perfect being like God. So you have properties like omniscience and omnipotence, um, all loving, those kind of things. And then we have um, the second volume, which deals with soteriology, which is a fancy word for a theory of salvation. That is, how is it and by what means are we saved? And so it deals with such issues as predestination and reprobation. Reprobation is the is God either chooses to leave some to damnation when he could save them, or he affirmatively chooses to send people to hell. That's you're a reprobate if when you if you're one of those people. Um, and it deals with the relationship between justification and sanctification, between grace and works. It asks such questions as, um, why would we pray to a God for salvation when God is already committed to our salvation? <clears throat> why would we? Um, ask God to save us when he's already committed to save us. Is there something we need to do? So it deals with those kinds of issues. The third issue deals with the relation among the divine persons in either the Trinity or the Godhead, depending on the nomenclature that you prefer, and um, looks specifically at the um, ancient pro proto Israelite um, types of documents like the Russian Ra Ugaritic texts that talk about a, a council of gods. And then I trace the development of the view of God's relation to the council of gods through to the Christian era. I look specifically at the co logical coherence and biblical faithfulness of various views 
of of the Trinity or Godhead. And then I also look specifically at what human deification is, and what the both the scriptural background with it, what it would be, what it in fact is. And I look specifically also at the logical problems that arise from deification. One of the primary contributions of the first volume is a Mormon Christology that looks at the question from both the biblical perspective and also the um, perspective of um, the current Anglo-American analytic philosophy looking at the coherence of the idea that Christ could be both fully human and also at the same time fully divine. Because in, in most traditions, what it means to be fully divine is is logically incompatible with what it means to be a human being at the same time. And um, I suggest that Mormonism provide an, an uniquely satisfying way of satisfying the logical problems and looking at um, fidelity to, to biblical documents. All right. That's a fairly summed up and thorough summary of kind of what those cover. So, um, so I, I, from what you're saying, I, I hope listeners are taking away that basically exploring Mormon thought is is a, a rigorous and philosophical look at Mormonism and as well as where it fits within the tradition and and things like that. So that's why it's kind of unique. And um, as as far as praise for the book has gone, some people have. I'm just reading some of the reviews here and the praise words and touted as the most important works or some of the most important works on Mormon theology ever written. And they're, you know, as important or at least on par with such works as possibly those by well-known LDS, uh, I guess we can call them theologians or authors as B.H. Roberts or John A. Woodso. Um, and the reason for that is just because they do look in depth and, and find Mormonism's place within the spectrum. Because a lot of LDS books are kind of, I wouldn't say ignorant, but they kind of don't really address the rest of Christianity. It's more like a, an in-crowd nuance view that isn't really aiming to be understood by other people. So I think these books are really unique in that they they're aimed to, you know, be for an LDS audience, but they're also aimed at being able to see where Mormonism fits among like the scholarly uh, understanding of you know theology in general. So that's cool. I, w I would say they're unique in that they approach these issues from the perspective of, and rigor of analytic philosophy. Given the best kinds of discussions that have occurred in, in the tradition, um, with what I consider to be the best thinkers and some of the most talented writers. There's been an intense amount of work in the philosophy of religion um, since uh, about the 1960s, and in particular the 70s, with the resurrection of Christian philosophy by Alvin Plantinga. And so um, there really hasn't been this kind of philosophical rigor looking at Mormon thought before, and that I would say is is it's kind of unique in that respect. All right. Um, so this this volume four. So you've gone over the basic topics and things that are covered in the other three volumes. So this one is on the problem of evil, which is a philosophical 
problem. Um, but I wonder if you can kind of, well, twofold, introduce us to what the problem of evil is, but also kind of explain why, why you chose this as the topic of this next volume. Did it, I wonder if it logically followed from what you'd already set up, or was it just another problem that you wanted to address, or what, what led you to try to attack this particular problem in this volume? The problem of evil is where um, the the rubber of theology hits the ground. Okay, it's where you get your traction. Um, what the problem of evil addresses is really what what is most important to us. How does how do our beliefs affect us in the concrete challenges of life as we live it? And the problem of evil can be stated as a philosophical problem. If God has the power to rid the world of evil, and if he's all good and wants to rid the world of all evil, then how could there possibly be evil in the world? That's an easy statement of the philosophical problem, but it's also an existential problem, something that everybody confronts. Everybody has had challenges, but it's it's not merely the everyday challenges of dealing with difficult people or the problems of life. Oftentimes we deal with with, with innocent people who are brutally beaten and murdered. We deal with something like the Holocaust where 6 million Jews are taken and, and gassed in the most horrific type of, you know, treatment. And, and they're not alone. I mean, if we went in into the murders of Pol Pot and Stalin in Russia, the panoply of, of human evil it just becomes overwhelming. But it can also be overwhelming in our lives. Um, we all know of experiences, if we haven't directly experienced them ourselves. I use a few specific examples in my book, dealing, for instance, with a young girl who was kidnapped and then brutally beaten and murdered in in uh, northern Utah in the 1980s. Or a case that I know of personally where I have a friend who um, had a little girl. Um, they went out after church to play. She was with her brother. And inexplicably, a car that was parked in a driveway on a bit of an incline began to roll. And she got caught under it. And her little brother tried to stop the car, but he couldn't do it. He wasn't strong enough. And the car rolled over her head and killed her. And those kinds of things are where you know, when we're confronted with those kinds of experiences, they're, they're just gut-wrenching. And then we have the kind of natural evils where we right now have a COVID pandemic. We're blessed in that it's not really attacking little children and, and younger people. But their virus, the most virulent killer in history, smallpox, which killed several billion people and attacked primarily younger people, babies and, and children, and, you know, we've now eradicated it, which I also use in the volume to suggest that if we had the power to eradicate it, it couldn't possibly be necessary to the world for God's purposes because it's not around anymore. So what could, what purpose does it serve? Why would it be allowed? So we confront these kinds of specific issues. They're just the issues of everyday lived life as well. And the bigger problem of evil is the problem that we are want to overlook, and that's the problem of evil in our own hearts. Every single one of us have done things that we're ashamed of. Every single one of us that have lived to a, the age of accountability have done things that we know are wrong and that violate our own personal moral code, whatever that is. We know in our hearts the evil that we are. 
And so it's something that we deal with in ourselves. It's, it's up close and personal. It's as close as the person in the mirror. <laughs> so the problem of evil is pervasive, and it is the primary issue that also confronts Christianity. I mean, Paul was dealing with the problem of evil, and Christianity's primary focus is on dealing with evil. The entire purpose of the atonement is to explain how Christ's life, death, suffering, and resurrection overcome evil. And so the, the Christian religion is, in essence, a response to the problem of evil. It, it, the, the problem of evil may be just called the problem of being a human in mortality. It's that broad. All right. So if I'm understanding, then it's basically why are bad things happening to good and or bad people if God is supposedly in control, as most Christians believe, and if he if he has the power to stop bad things and he he has the knowledge of all the bad things that can happen and and most Christians assume that he is all loving, therefore he would want to stop these things. If he has all those attributes, then why is there bad at all? And if there is, which there obviously is, then as used as an argument against the existence of at least that formulation of that trifecta of God's attributes, meaning and a lot of atheists try to say, like, you know, there it is. I mean, that's the problem for Christianity that God, that God can't exist. Yeah, and it is a problem for Christianity, and I think we ought to just admit it. I don't know how many people are atheists because of the problem of evil, especially in its logical form. I, I doubt that very few people are Christian because of the force of proofs of God's existence, since I don't believe any of the proofs are very persuasive. That's not why I believe. But I, I wonder how many people have lost their faith because of their life's experience. I would suggest that the almost complete abandonment of Christianity in Europe is due to the problem of evil. I think two world wars kicked the crap out of Europe and that for them believing in God is very difficult because of the experiences that they've gone through. And after the 20th century, it's just difficult to believe in God. I mean, that's possible. So, I mean, that that's good. That frames kind of what the basic problem is. And you go more into the book, there's different, formulations or ways to articulate the problem of evil. Uh, there's, you know, a logical problem of evil. There's the pastoral problem of evil, as well as uh, there's some others that you probably know that we don't need to go into. But basically the, the problem encompasses, you know, it, it hits on many different ways. And so next I wanted to come and talk about um, in Christianity, then obviously people, I mean, you know, this is the age old question of why are, why are bad things happening to me? You know, as far back as the author of the book of Job has been, you know, wrestling with this question of I'm a good person, but bad things are happening to me. And there's been lots of, you know, theories and theologies all going towards some sort of answer for that. But in at least modern Christianity, and I think you address these in the book, the most common answers, and I think within Mormonism itself, they, they have different forms of these. It, it, would, it comes to, it's like, well, you know, God gave his creatures free will, and therefore humans are doing bad things, or, oh, you know, God just wants you to learn something from those experiences. So those are the answers I hear most Christians and Mormons give. So is, there, is, is that sufficient, or what's the problem with those answers, or why don't they go far enough? 
or do they? Well, it, it clearly isn't going to be sufficient. We can begin with an entire class of people that may be the largest class of human beings that have ever lived, those who didn't make it to the age of accountability. If the purpose of the problem of evil is to give us the opportunity to um, engage in what we call soul building in terms of personal growth, how do we justify the kinds of things that happen to little children who never get a real start on life? The number of children who died, died in childbirth alone is vast. The number of children who don't make it past the age of three prior to the 20th century was, it was a huge percentage. And it can't, I mean, that kind of explanation doesn't even begin to touch their lives and their experience. Is Are we willing to say that God sacrificed all of them um, for the benefit of other people so that they could learn. That seems like a, a great Nazi scientist who's using other people to try to find a, a cure to a disease. So he just pulls in prisoners and uses them for experimentation. Okay. Interesting. So, and if you can't sum this up in a short time, you know, you don't have to answer the question in depth or you can just say, I can't answer that fully here. But in, in the book, you, at least I think, maybe the first third of it is making the strongest argument of evil that there is in light of like, you're trying to, you know, instead of what's called straw manning it, which is setting up a weaker form of the argument, you, you confront head on the strongest forms of the problem of evil and come to the conclusion that if, you know, if God is the God of classical theology, meaning he's, you know, absolutely transcendent, omnipotent, and he creates ex nihilo, you say the problem of evil does prove that that God does not exist. So can you kind of explain how you come to that conclusion? I, I can. The So if God is in complete control in the sense that he creates all of the parameters of existence because he creates out of nothing. He can have any people that he wants. And there are two kinds of arguments. Usually what we would say is that God um, may have a greater good that he's attempting to achieve through allowing evil to occur. He wants people to learn to be loving and he wants people to grow as people. I've already shown why that doesn't work for the vast you know, for the vast majority of humans possibly who existed. But even beyond that, if we're going to say that God is in control and everything occurs is because it, if every evil occurs is in accordance with God's plan and it's all for a greater good, then it doesn't matter what we do. Let's say I go out and murder three people. I'd have to conclude that that was all for a greater good. And because God knows a lot more than I do, if he allowed it to happen, I'm in a position where I can simply um, basically give up on any notion that I ha can make any sense of morality. Because what appears to be evil to me appears to be a greater good. And so all of these things that happen, um, you know, doesn't really matter. We can just trust that God's going to you know, make sure that nothing bad actually happens in terms of whether or not it's for something that is more important. And so it's like, like the evil of a vaccination. If, if a person is bitten by a bat that may have rabies, we take and submit them to a very painful process of shots directly in the stomach um, to, you know, basically protect them against rabies. It's a very painful treatment. Um, and we do that because of the greater good that we can drive because rabies is fatal. 
Well, if we could solve that problem by instead giving a sugar cube to the person, we wouldn't be justified in the painful shots. And so there are three conditions that would have to be met. We would have to show that the greater goods are of sufficient value that they are worth allowing the kinds of evils that occur. They have the the goods have to be, <clears throat> excuse me, the evils have to be absolutely necessary to the attainment of the goods. That is, it has to be logically necessary to the attainment of the good. If you can achieve it in some other way that's less evil, then um, it's not justifiable. And there's another condition. We don't, we don't allow um, Nazi scientists to come in and simply pull people out and operate on them to see if they can find a greater good for humanity. <laughs> The people who are, are, are involved have to consent to what's going on and have to be able to freely consent to what they're going to experience. If we don't, then we make people into mere objects, into mere things, and that um, fails to recognize the value of what human beings are. Let me, and so, let me ask you if I ahead. may in here. Um, a lot of people that I've talked to about this problem or that I've just encountered trying to explain different points of view on this. So a lot of Christianity and the general Mormon people that I talk to um, have this notion, which I think you would have to agree with to some degree, but they try to justify the evils that they, cause they do believe they're like, oh, I do believe there is some greater good and there is some soul building for, for the evils we encounter. But the you know a very common Christian trope or phrase is like God's ways are higher than our ways or they're not our ways meaning you know it's impossible for us to ever tell because we don't have the same perspective as God so it's impossible for you to prove that any evil is in not somehow for the greater good so that's kind of the, their go-to argument is like well there's no way we can know that it wasn't for the greater good but what from what you just said you we're saying that then that makes it so we wouldn't have any understanding of morality, but would you, do you assert that God is, is held to the same moral standards as the average human? Cause it seems like at least in Mormonism, we're the ones being put to the test, not him. So I don't know. It depends on how you think about that. Well, I think there's something right about what you're saying. Um, the analogy is that if I take my dog in for shots for worms and for, vaccinations, my dog can't begin to fathom what germ theory is and how the shots will eradicate worms, doesn't even know it can get worms. And certainly the difference between us and God is at least as great as the difference between us and dogs, and if probably much vaster, <laughs> undoubtedly much vaster, um, and much broader. And so there's something that's correct about that. We don't know what God's purposes are, and it may well be that his purposes are beyond our ability to even conceive. There are two problems with that. The first is it leaves us no idea of what it means when we say God is good. If goodness, if God's goodness is so beyond our ability to assess, then when we assert that God is good or loving or caring, what we're asserting is God is something I can't conceive and not anything beyond that. And we have no concept of what good is when it applies to God, because if God can treat us the way that the most evil person on earth would treat us, and it's still good, then good and evil lose all meaning with respect to God. Those those terms just become vacuous. But more importantly, it, it, it results in what I call moral um, quietude. That is, 
we don't have any reason to make any moral decisions at all because we can always just trust that everything is for the best. And so no matter what happens, we can just sit back and let it happen, or we can go out and cause as much damage and, and wreck as much havoc as we want because it's all for the best. That's the logical implication of that kind of an approach. And I don't think that any thoughtful Christian or Jew or Muslim, that is the people who believe in a personal God, a caring God who who created the world out of nothing, can accept that kind of a, a result. I give another argument, and that is if God creates out of nothing, then he's not stuck with just the kinds of people who actually exist. He could have had much better people. He could have made us virtually omniscient so that we would see the value of making moral decisions and and wouldn't be stupid and and idiots the kind the way we are when we do really evil things because it's really stupid to do evil things but more importantly we would also be able to rid the evil of virulent um types of of pandemics like smallpox i mean if we were virtually omniscient we would have had the ability to rid the world of smallpox centuries before we did we could have saved billions of lives we we could have we we probably would have had a, a solution for the covid virus and so we would have been much more able to rid the world of the kinds of natural evils that actually occur and this was an option that god had it was a better option than he had than, than actually exists um with us because we're defective in a lot of ways and if god chose defective beings when he could have had perfect beings then he chose something that was morally um, inferior and God making bad choices is is the problem, and so that's why any God in the tradition of of creation out of nothing had options available that he he should have chosen and failed to do, and what that means I believe all of this adds up to to arguing and I give a very careful argument I do not believe that um, the God as conceived for instance in the Augustinian the Thomistic the um, Molinist the Calvinistic, um, Muslim, or um, the kinds of, of traditions of Mammonoides in, in Judaism can withstand a careful look in light of the problem of evil. I think, as a matter of fact, that um, I don't know that they're, they're logically inconsistent with the existence of God, but certainly evidentially. And, I, and, and moreover, it leaves us in this position. I think we're justified surely in saying, as far as we're humanly able to assess, the God of the tradition who is omniscient, omnipotent, and all good can't possibly exist. And that's a very significant conclusion because what it means is, we, is that we are rationally justified in rejecting the existence of God and that it would be the most rational position we can come to as human beings. All right. Well, that that is a big claim. So hopefully, you know, that can gain some interest from the readers outside of Mormonism just to take a look at that. Although, if they don't believe in Mormonism, it might leave them wanting. But well, let's let's turn to that then. Yeah, so, and, and my purpose isn't to destroy the faith of other Christians, Muslims, and Jews, but intellectual integrity and, and, and simple honesty demands that we take a very careful and honest look at the at the real world in light of our claims about who and what God is. All right. Well, let's let's next turn to what Mormonism, or you know, the what's called cosmology or worldview that is revealed by Joseph Smith or as much as we can make sense of it um, shed or what kind of light that sheds on this problem or what kind of tools that we have that maybe aren't available to that traditional Christian view. So 
Um, one thing I, I like about this book is that it, it has, it's not, you know, like a, a black and white. You do, you obviously have a, and you can get into this when you explain it, but like you have your view that you're promoting, but you are open to and give a very, you know, fairly robust description of two other possible or what you call live option views within Mormonism. So um, that might come as a shock to some, you know, believers in that, like, wow, is, our theology is is so broad and inexact that we could come to, you know, vastly different conclusions on how God interacts with, you know, the world or what God's providence is, to use kind of the, the more traditional Christian terms, which just means in what way is God interacting with us and why? So, um, I mean, it, this is a big question, I guess, but what is it about Mormonism that is unique in approaching the problem of evil? And then if you could kind of briefly discuss what those live options are and, and why that's important. Sure. And I, I think that two of these are probably unique to Mormonism. Um, the first few is finitistic Mormonism, which I call God after the universe. That is, the, the universe already exists before God becomes God. God grows up within the universe that is already created, not of his um, creative efforts. And he learns to be God by learning to follow the moral laws and becomes a super scientist so that he can um, manipulate in ways that are miraculous to us the natural laws to achieve results that are desired by God. Um, and the value of that view is that it essentially dissolves the problem of evil. In other words, the answer is that evil exists because God is overwhelmed, doesn't have the resources to fully respond to evil. And so the reason that people die of, of cancer is that God's not quite capable of, you know, really healing cancer. He doesn't have the answers. Um, the answer as to why there are car accidents and little kids get run over is that God can't quite, doesn't have the power quite to stop cars. Um, and, and this view is essentially a view of God using technology to become what would be to us a super advanced divine being. The problems with that view are are many and enormous. The biggest problem is if that's really what you believe about God, why would you pray? Because God literally is overwhelmed and can't make a difference. And is this the kind of God we would really trust ultimately for our salvation? I mean, it seems like there are all kinds of things that could defeat God. <laughs> um, well, I, don't wanna, I don't want to undersell that view, but um, and it has the resources. If you want to make God really resourceful, I mean, imagine the kinds of things that there is easy ways to imagine God really being capable of addressing the problems of evil, of being able to take care of it. But then the problem of evil comes in through the back door because if God is actually capable of fully addressing evil and being the kind of being that is spoken about in Scripture, then you've got to, res you've got to explain why God allows those kind of evils. The problem right. is, is this God may not be all good. And so um, then you've got to... Is, is it that, that God is really capable but doesn't really want to rid the world of evil? So finitism, I think, is a live option within Mormonism, as you have, have stated it. And I think it's an important view, but I don't think that it is a fully satisfying view. And well, let, me let me make sure I understand okay. that. So what you're saying is 
that on that view, it dissolves the problem of evil in just saying, well, God, because the thing is like, well, God's all powerful, so we can't stop all evil, and he's all loving and all knowing, therefore he could do all these things. This just says, nope, he's not all powerful, therefore can't stop all evil. And you're saying that's A, that has the problem of a whole lot of problems in that, you know, why do you pray? Then is this God even, is, would you consider that God? Is this more like a, a demi, a demigod, basically? Um, but then a lot of people I talk to that, that hold this view, I think they, you know, because they do say God is technologically advanced or something, or he's so advanced that he appears to us to, to be a God. But, uh, and then when they, you bring, or when, it has brought up the objections that you say, like, whoa, look at all, there's all these limits to, to, you know, how you could pray or the speed of light or something. Like, well, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know about science. And so I think, and then that's true, obviously, like we don't know the limits of physics and science and what could be possible to a being of that caliber, but that almost brings it back into the, the supernatural God is a mystery realm and doesn't really solve anything. And like you said, it also yeah. brings back in the problem of evil because like, well, then then you give God enough power that he still could solve evil. Therefore, you didn't solve the problem of evil. And now you still need what is called the theodicy. And in other words, to justify God's, you know, why God allows evil in the world. So that's. Yeah. And, and look at where you end up. You ended up at the same place as the tradition. God's ways are not our ways. We can't figure him out. Um, he's so super advanced. And it, it, it is true that we don't know the limits of science, but we do know the limit of the speed of light. Um, it's true that we don't know all the all about gravity, but we do know enough to know that it's the ultimate force in the universe and that it may ultimately cause the big crunch and that God wouldn't have the power to prevent it. And so... Um, the problems with this view are are significant. Now, let me preface by saying also, um, I give an argument in volumes two and three that the King Follett discourse and the Sermon in the Grove of Joseph Smith have been misunderstood. Most people, I think, have historically read that to say that God grew up in the universe on this finitist view. I argue that that's not what Joseph Smith is teaching at all. I argue that what Joseph Smith is teaching is that, that to the Father, like the Son, was fully divine before becoming a human being. Clearly in Mormon thought, the Son was fully divine before becoming human. And if the argument of Joseph Smith holds water, then he was doing what he saw the Father do. And that means that the Father was also fully divine be, before becoming mortal. Also, what Joseph Smith actually taught is not that God grew up as one of the mere gods and learned how to be a god from them. He taught that there's a god of all other gods, a head god. I mean, he uses the term head god, um, uh, the god that, that is the god of, of all other gods, um, over 30 times in the King Follett Discourse and the Sermon in the Grove. It's the primary purpose for which he's talking. So I give a hermeneutic for explaining why Joseph Smith didn't actually teach what I think a lot of people have understood him to teach. All right. Um, are there any, and we don't have to get too super into it, but like I said, I'm sure, you know, I, that may be convincing to some people and maybe not to others. So do you think without the additional point of view that you bring there, is, is there no hope for that view? Or is it like you said, it just, it still leaves it up to the supernatural realm and you still have to solve the problem of evil regardless or Cause that, that's the thing is like when I talk to people on, I mean, if I, there's a, there's a, uh, I don't know, a faction or a, 
I don't know what you call it, like a, a movement within Mormonism, and that's the transhumanist movement, which is very specifically on the technological side of that. But the one, the view that you're addressing there that comes from that under, that understanding of the King Follett discourse and the Sermon in the Grove, I'm not sure I would group that together with those people per se. So I wonder, is that is there some other view in there or is that just basically our theology is so conflicting that we haven't really thought about it? <laughs> well, it's clear we haven't done a lot of thinking about theology, but um, I believe that there are an infinite number of possible views. Um, it, it's just a matter of, they're going to fall out in the three basic categories, I think, that I have elucidated, and that is, God who is after the universe, a God who grew up within an already organized existing universe, a God who is with the universe, a process view, which I'll discuss shortly, and a God who is before the universe. That is that the organization that creates the universe and the basis for organization in the universe is God. And God has eternally existed as a divine being, and he's the source of order in the universe, and so it depends upon him in that sense. And these are really three mutually exclusive and logically exhaustive ways of looking at God's relation to the world. And so I think it's going to have to fall largely within that schema to make sense of Mormonism. Okay. And, and yeah, well, let's breeze over the next one. So the, the next view that you say is a live option is kind of a Mormon process theology. Uh, a lot of listeners might be familiar with that, but it's kind of, it's pretty popular among like the more philosophical leaning crowd. Whereas I think the, the first view is more among like the scientifically minded people. Um, but among the philosophers, uh, basically the process theology, it's very complicated, but, Basically, it also dissolves the problem of evil kind of in the same way and just saying that God doesn't have that kind of power. Yeah, God acts persuasively. And the reason is, is that every small bit of reality has its own creative power that God can't control. And so when we're looking at God, he, he can only influence these most basic bits of reality but he can't determine what they'll do. It may be that they'll all miraculously cooperate with him, but that would that would be something that's out of his control. And most of the time they don't cooperate with him, and so he's, to put it mildly, at their mercy in a sense. Um, the process view has a lot to recommend. I, I believe I'm giving the first fully outlined and discussed process theodicy within Mormonism in this volume. Um, and... I think that this view has a lot to offer. Um, it's based upon um, a recognition that reality is more like is what is described in quantum mechanics than is described in Newtonian um, physics and atomism of the early Greeks. And so I won't go into detail, but the notion is that God only has persuasive power, not controlling power. And it has some of the same problems as finitism. But I think it can make more sense of things like corporate prayer, for instance, because the notion is that um, the more influence that we bring to um, persuade each of these bits of individual matter to, com to cooperate with God, the more it likely it is that they will cooperate. And so the more prayers and the more um, people get together, the more persuasive power is being exercised in relation to these other realities. So it can make sense of prayer and it can make 
some sense of prayer can make, I think, especially sense of corporate prayer, where we get people together to pray for the same thing in, in unity. Um, and I think that it, it can make more sense of the order that we actually experience in the world. In other words, process thought came about after the theory of evolution had already been promoted, but it presupposes, the nature of process thought presupposes a kind of slow growth in evolution of forms of life to bring about God's creation and purpose. And so a lot of what we find in reality, I think, is very consistent with um, process thought. And so I think it's a live option. Um, whether it's a better option than finitism, of course, is a person-specific type of a judgment, but I think that it has a lot to recommend. It also has some problems. And I think the biggest problem is, is that it's very uncertain on this view whether God will ultimately prevail. God is really at the mercy of the bits of reality and their creativity. And God can't guarantee that he'll prevail. And that's not the kind of thing we find in Scripture. In Scripture, we find the guarantee God is definitely going to prevail. He's in charge. And we can trust him to prevail against any enemy that seeks our destruction. Okay, so and the way I understood it from um, reading this last view, so I briefly, I want you to go over kind of what you mean by God before the universe and how that would differ on the Mormon view as opposed to just creation ex nihilo. And I guess do that first, and then I'll get to the second part of my question. Well, so the easy part is, is that God has to work with already existing constituents through eternal realities in organizing the universe. He doesn't organize it out of nothing. Well, let, let's stop then. So what, when you say universe, are you talking about the actual universe or are you talking, because like I, some philosophers I know that they talk to, they, they'll say the universe or creation, or it just means everything that's not God. Like how, do, how are you using that term? So the universe is everything that exists, <laughs> okay? Um, and so, there, that would include if it's if the truth is that there's a multiverse in many universes, then they all depend on God for their existence and organization. And the the bottom line with this view is that God um, controls whether there's order in the world by by concurring with the actual um, realities that exist, but He can't determine what their properties are. So, for instance, um, God could determine whether hydrogen and oxygen organize, but he can't determine whether if they organize as two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen that it forms water. Nor could he have water that isn't two atoms of hydrogen and one of, of oxygen. And so the key to this view is that um, the fact that there is order is up to God. However, what the properties of ordering are of the constituents is not up to God. So that's the relation that God has to the natural universe. Okay, so does that does that solve the problem of evil? Is that saying God then doesn't have enough power, or or does there still a power problem on this view? No, in fact, it's that's only uh, that's that's only background for understanding the environment within which God is working. Okay, so God is also working within an environment that in a universe populated with eternal intelligences. And there are two types of intelligences, what I call natural intelligences, that act of a deterministic natural propensity, and personal intelligences that do not. They have free will. They can act in a way that is um, with alternative choice and so forth. 
And and so what God is doing, God doesn't have the choice to have just any persons he wants. He has to work with the people that actually already exist and begin with them where they are to then work with them to go where they choose to go. And God wants to give us the greatest possible gift conceivable. The greatest possible good is to be, for these intelligences, is to be in the loving, intimate, fulfilling relationship of love that is enjoyed by each of the persons in the Godhead. And amazingly enough, the scriptures show that we're invited into this relationship. And so the agape theodicy, agape is the Greek word for for love, the kind of pure love that Christ has. In this world, um, what God is seeking to do is to give us the opportunity, if we so choose, to have everything that he has and to be everything that he is and to share fully in the loving relationship that he offers us. Because it also fulfills God to be in our loving relationship and to give love and to receive love. We all seek to be loved and to give love. It's just the nature of the kind of thing that we are. We are beings that flourish in loving relationships. And what could be greater than than having everything that God has and being everything that he is? And that means to exist within this most intimate, fulfilling, loving relationship possible. Um, And so God is devising a plan where he can give us the opportunity to learn to love in that way. Now, God accepts our consent. There's the story in Mormonism that there was a full third of heaven that chose not to become mortal. They're damned in that they can't progress further, but... They weren't coerced to become mortal. God gave them a choice, and he honored the choice that they made to remain where they were. Those who are born of chosen and consented to enter this life, after God has fully explained to us the kinds of evils and the kinds of experiences that we may undergo, the kinds of pains, and we have made the choice that it's worth it for us to pursue this greatest of all goals, to fully share love with one another and with God. And that's kind of what Christianity is all about. It's what Mormonism is all about. And so it, the notion of God's power is to, to show the framing of the kind of environment within which God is working to achieve his purposes, beginning with already existing intelligences in a world that is already delimited in many ways in the ways that it can be organized. And so it, it, it is the background for this kind of what's known as a theodicy or explanation of how a loving God could, could um, coexist with the kind of world we actually live in. Okay. Well, how, uh, cause it, and I, you know, I'm leading the witness because I, I know the answers to the question because I read the book and we did a lot of long podcasts about it. But for for the listener, so how does this escape some of the same problems that you addressed earlier, such as moral quietude or or some of the pitfalls of because this is this calls falls into the category of uh, what philosophy or theology calls a soul building theodicy. I mean, like, well, the reason God allows evil is because we got to learn something from the hardships. And so he allows us to endure hardships so that we can learn and build our character and grow. Um, you've stated in Mormonism, he doesn't have, you know, we don't have the problem, I guess, of 
he's created us ex nihilo. So it's like, well, why wouldn't you just create us already like that? In in Mormon view, we have to progress. Either either there's internal we are eternal intelligences, or we, you know, or the other view is we are spirit children. But once we're born, it's still we're our own thing, and that's still before this life. And so we have to come up and and learn. But if if it's a soul building theodicy, then some of the pitfalls of that is is like I said, the moral quietude where it's like, well, then why are we still not justified? And like, if we see someone being, you know, beaten in an alley, why are we not justified in saying, like, well, God must want them to learn something, so therefore I shouldn't intervene? Or some of the other problems with a, I guess, I guess my question is, what tools does Mormonism have? as a soul building theodicy that aren't available in a traditional soul building theodicy? Well, you've already recognized a number. It doesn't have the problem of explaining how God could be just to all of those who don't even get a start on human life. They already existed and they've consented to come to be a part of God's plan to serve others out of love for others. And there are some who progress in this life to a point where all they needed from this life was to obtain a body. And so they are not cheated in any way of the kind of progress necessary to be in this loving relationship by not having a full human life to live and to learn and to grow. It also doesn't have the problem that, um, as you've as you've already noticed, that God can't have just any kinds of creatures that he wants. He has to begin with us the way that we actually are and work with us from there. But most importantly, we're the kind of creatures who have the capacity for deification. And what that means is we have the capacity to achieve the greatest possible good that is even imaginable. And what that requires is that we learn to love in the way that God loves. And so God has instituted a plan and given us commandments to assist us to learn how to love one another. What that means is there can be genuine evils. It's not guaranteed that we will be saved. It's not, this isn't, you know, where this isn't universal salvation, where everybody's exalted with this greatest of all goods. Whether it's achieved or not is up to us, and it may well not be achieved. Or it may take a very long time to be achieved for all, if that's what we choose. And so along the way, there can be Uh, and I I explain this logically in the book, there can be events that occur that are not um, for the best, all things considered. Genuine tragedies can occur, and they can occur within the scope of God's plan. They're justified, even though they're not ultimately for the good. And the reason they're not ultimately for the good is that we made bad choices and didn't choose a world that would be for the greatest good, because God leaves it up to us whether there's going to be this good achieved or not. That's up to us. And so it has the resources to basically solve the problems, I think, that beset the soul-building theodicy within the context of classical Christianity. But more importantly, it gives context of what Mormons call the plan of salvation um, in order to give us a more complete picture of what our purpose in life is. And, and the purpose in life for every single person. We all have different purposes in life. You have different gifts to give than I have, and we all have different purposes and things that we accomplish in life. But one thing that we all are, are seeking to accomplish here is to learn how to love and, and to give the gifts out of love that we have. And we all know, down deep, I suggest, that we're called to love. 
we're called to, to be with each other in a loving way. The problem is, is it's very obvious that not everybody loves in that way. And it's very obvious that we don't love in that way. And so God has ordered the world in a way that it is a mentor of God's. The world is set up in a way that those things which challenge us, even those things that challenge us most, serve us in God's plan. That is, they serve us if we choose to allow them to serve us. Let me give you an example. Here's an amazing reality. Jesus taught not merely that we should love ourselves, that we should love God, and that we should love others. He taught that we should love enemies. And this is a real challenge, because by by nature, enemies are people that we don't like. <laughs> and so we've been called to love enemies. And I suggest that we learn best when we're outside of our comfort zone, when we're stretched way beyond where we're willing to go, given our human nature. And so the world is a place that, dare I say, stretches us maximally. It takes us out of our comfort zone over and over again. It challenges with people that we really would prefer not to be around. But at the end of the day, if we look at what's really happening, we realize that those people who are challenging you the most are really blessing us the most. They're giving us the opportunity to learn what we can't learn in any other way. And the truth is, is we're surrounded by angels, angels who serve us in our quest to learn how to love each other and to fulfill the command to, to love. And the reason we've been commanded to love is that that's what the, the fulfillment of the purpose of life is. But recognize that what it does, in, in this view, evil isn't overcome because God is achieving some greater good that outweighs the value of the evil. Rather, what happens is that we heal the evil. We redeem the evil by learning to love. We give the evil a purpose that turns it from being evil into something that really serves us to grow. And so what this means is that we are in a loving environment, even when it appears to be hostile, and we are surrounded by angels blessing our lives, even, and possibly even most, when we're being challenged the most. And so this world really, now I'll just, I've lived long enough to know that the greatest challenges in life, those things that stretch us to the limit, they're really difficult to go through, and I've gone through a few of them. And when I talk to people who I believe are mature in, in the gospel and in the spirit, what they tell me is that the hardest times were actually the times that caused them to grow the most and from which they learned the most, and they wouldn't change a thing about it. And they bless those experiences. Now, maybe it takes a good deal of distance from the experiences to give that perspective, but I've got that perspective. I've, I've been through those kinds of experiences, and I've come out the other end, and I can see how they transformed me, or at least gave me the opportunity to choose to be transformed and to learn how to love through those kinds of experiences. And so that's kind of the essence of, of the agape or love, the plan of love theodicy that I present. All right, so if I understand, you're saying the, the purpose of life, at least God's goal for us is to basically learn to love each other and God and to kind of have that same relationship as he describes in, in the 
in John 17, where he says, I want to be one with, I want my apostles to be one with you, like I'm one with you. And then, and then he extends that to everyone. He's like, I want everybody that believes in me to be in that same relationship. So that's what God wants for us. But to do that, we have to, we have to learn something that we, we have to gain some sort of experiences that we didn't have before. So we have to come here. You, I think you outline a few things in the book that I won't go into of just like, you know, we have to have that distance from God. So it's not so overwhelming in our, you know, be, be there. And then the, at least as far as we are aware, the stakes have to be real so we can see that there's, you know, some sort of imperative to be good to other people. Like, a it's, it's to be more responsible for others in that, like, for example, if I, I have children and I understand if I don't take care of them and do the loving thing, they'll be dead and I'll go to jail and I'll feel bad the rest of my life. So that imperative is there to take care of them. And it's not just that it's also because I care about them. And then that hopefully we expand that to, you know, not just our own immediate families, but the rest of everyone we encounter and beyond that. Yeah. And see, that's why love transcends duty. If I take care of my children out of a sense of legal duty, then it's onerous and there's a great weight and I'm doing it. It feels heavy. But more than that, I, I do it for reasons that are completely de- uh, independent of that I love them. If I do it, there's no weight to that. I do it willfully and gladly, and, and I do it out of a sense of who I am. And so when we, when we treat each other morally and ethically out of love for each other, it's not a heavy burden. There's, it's not even a duty. It's simply something that expresses who we actually are. And so it's the greatest expression of who we are. And, and that's a fulfillment of what it is to be human. We could, we could use a term of self-actualization. We self-actualize most fully when we, when we love each other. And so I, I'd say that's the essence of the Christian religion. It's certainly the essence, I think, of what Joseph Smith was teaching, the purpose of life is. And it brings together a lot of things that we would want to say that Jesus taught, and especially his radical ethic taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so th- th- that's the kind of, of uh, theodicy that I present, one that, that I think takes advantage of the full resources of a particular tradition that really answers. I mean, the entire the entire plan of salvation, the entire gospel, is aimed at addressing the problem of evil. And the atonement of Christ in particular, the atonement of Christ is the solution to the problem of evil. It's how Christ overcomes the evil in the world through his love, through sacrificial love. And so the purpose of atonement is the expression of this theodicy, and it's essential to the theodicy because it's through atonement that we achieve this in, this incredible superlative good of being in this loving relationship. Um, we have the capacity to be fully deified and to share and be everything that God is. And that's only through the the act of Christ. That's what the Christian religion has always taught. And so this, this theodicy also incorporates the very fundamental, most basic realities of the Christian religion, which really is a response to the problem of evil. All right. Well, great. Then I guess, you know, obviously this is kind of a teaser overview of what's in the book and it's it's more in depth than 
goes into all the objections that might have popped into your head. Like, what about this? What about this? You know, I'm sure that's kind of the point. But um, as far as, I guess, the the main takeaway that you want people to have from this book, I mean, you kind of went into it there at the end. But as far as any, you know, anyone that's reading this book, what is it that you want them to walk away from this with? Because one or or how did you that plus how or do you think that you avoided kind of the pitfall of uh philosophy when like you said when the rubber hits the road it's it's a little bit different than individual lived experiences and so it's kind of hard to you know like you said this to me like you you definitely wouldn't go up to someone at a funeral and be like hey psst, let me just remind you about the uh the plan of agape and why this is all fine and it's not a problem at all so what how so when people confront evil what what from this book would help them i guess is a question i could ask i i would like people to take away the broad perspective of god's purposes for us and our purposes and who and what we actually are and to focus the purpose of life on what i believe everybody knows they're called to and that's to love one another um, it's a very simple message. I believe it was the center of what Jesus was teaching. But it's, it really is that simple. And if, if what it does is refocuses us on how love heals lives, of how love will be the, the catalyst for us to make our lives better and the lives of all those around us better, so that we begin to be the solution to the problem of evil. Evil is not overcome by explaining how it's done away with by some greater good and the logical connections. It's done by showing how we redeem evil so that it is, it is repurposed through our love so that evil then becomes the means by which we show how much we truly are committed to one another. And, it's in the moments when we're stretched the most that we show who we are. It's in the moments when we're stretched the most that we really have the opportunity to grow and be loving in a new way that we haven't had the capacity before. When that happens, the light in the universe increases. I would like them to take away this very simple truth. Love is the greatest power in the universe. All right. With that, again, we'll just remind you, November 5th is when the book comes out, and it's Exploring Mormon Thought, Volume 4, God's Plan to Heal Evil. So thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Corey. I love you much, Lee. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thought.